Now this morning we're going to talk about a huge problem that we have in common with the people of Israel in the time of the judges. The problem is basically this, that when we don't get the credit we think we deserve, that's when we need someone to save us from ourselves. Because the more we focus on ourselves, the less we focus on God. Now, nobody likes living with an outside threat, but at least an outside threat serves to constantly remind us that we need God. But when there is no outside threat, we feel secure enough without God. So we tend to put God on the shelf until we need him. But when there is no outside threat, uh, we just don't really think about God that much. We, we forget all about him. And this is exactly what happened to the nation of Israel in Gideon's day. And it's what we see happening among us often as well. Last week, uh, you, write, you may remember that God gave Gideon and his small army of 300 men an absolutely astounding victory over an army of 135,000 Midianites. Without lifting a sword, Gideon and his army of 300 triumphed marvelously over their enemies. So how did the people respond when they heard this astounding news? Did they spontaneously erupt in enthusiastic uh, praise to God for what he had done? Is that what happened? Well, it's what should have happened, but it's not what happened at all. Uh, okay, so uh, what did happen then? We might well expect that the same kind of thing that happened in uh, every other instance in the book of Judges when there was a foreign oppressor and God raised up a judge and that judge delivered uh, the people of God from the, the threat and so they lived in, uh, in, in peace for a, a number of years and then after the judge died uh, then the people of Israel again started that downward spiral into rejection of God and experiencing of consequences uh, before they would cry out to the Lord again and God would answer them. So is that what we see happening here? Uh, not exactly. Uh, here is the first time where the, the pattern seems to have a a break to it. This time, after God delivers his people through a miraculous intervention, working through people, through a judge, uh, for the first time, the people go into this downward spiral while the judge is still living. This had not happened yet. So with Gideon, this is something new. And... Uh, I want to pick up the, the narrative in chapter 8, and uh, we're going to be looking at 
both chapter 8 and chapter 9 this morning. It's too lengthy a passage to read in one big chunk and, uh, you know, to comment on that in, in the time that we have allotted. Uh, so we're just going to take this a chunk at a time. So I'm going to take a really big bite uh, right now and start with chapter 8, uh, verse 1. And you can find that in your pew Bibles on page 206, I think, somewhere in there. I had that written down. But anyway, 207. Yeah, I had it written on the slide, but it's not working. Okay, page 207, beginning in chapter 8, verse 1. The men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you had done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. He said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grapes uh, or the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I done in comparison with you? And then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. And so he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmana, the kings of Midian. The officials of Succoth said, are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sokoth had answered and he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I'll tear down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noah, and Jog. Uh, Jogbaha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Ziba and Zalmana fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmana, and he threw all the army into a panic. And then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harris, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth. Seventy-seven men. And then he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmana, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmana already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars with them, and taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel, and kill the men of the city. Well, for the first time, the people of Israel began backsliding while their judge was still living. 
rather than waiting for their judge to die and then turn away from God. So, uh, you know, rather than summing up Gideon's post-victory leadership in one verse, which is usually what the narrator of Judges does, he instead, uh, well, here's the, the, the verse that kind of sums up uh, you know, Gideon's life. The, Gideon, the son of Joash, died a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Oprah of the Abiezrites. If only the narrative ended here, uh, for Gideon's sake. It would have been such a wonderful legacy to leave. You know, all of the accolades uh, that should go to God would continue to go to God, and Gideon would be remembered as a faithful servant of the Lord. But it doesn't end here. It continues. And... Uh, Something is changing. Here's what's changing. The, the enemy is no longer a foreign threat. The enemy is no longer without. The enemy is now within. The people of Israel needed someone to save them, not from a foreign power, but from themselves. Now here's the key question. What causes a nation or a church or a family or an individual to come to the point where they need to be saved from themselves? The same thing that we see happening here in chapters 8 and 9 of Judges. First of all, uh, Gideon and then Abimelech turn on their own people because neither of them got the honor that they thought that they deserved. this ever happened to you? You knock yourself out at work to get a project completed on time and under budget and then when you do, you don't get the credit that you think that you deserve for the work that you did or maybe day after day you give yourself to your family, managing multiple schedules, reminding them of their responsibilities, putting food on their plates and do you hear choruses of thanks? No. No. When you don't get the honor or the credit that you believe that you deserve, you are vulnerable. You are vulnerable to being no longer God-centered, but self-centered. This is what we see happening in Judges chapter 8. In chapter 9. So let's dig in a little deeper. When you don't seek the glory of God above all, then you're going to be seeking your own glory. And uh, we see it illustrated in Gideon's life and then his son Abimelech's life. So uh, first let's look at it in Gideon's life. Now, last week we left Gideon at the peak of success. He and his small band of 300 men were, were, were basking in, in victory. And God had used them to rout the Midianites. And the image comes to mind, or, or the image that does come to mind is, is that of a sports team that had just won the, the championship. And, 
Uh, you see the scene in the locker room where the champagne is flowing and then uh, later on when they go to their home city, the, the confetti is flying and they're basking in the glory of victory. Exuberance permeates the atmosphere. But for the people of Israel, uh, there was no such celebration, no such parade, uh, because there was no time to celebrate. You see, the, the war was not over yet. Uh, sure, the 300 men through the, uh, the, the, the breaking of those pots, creating a, a panic, and uh, the torches that were under the pots uh, would, would also uh, add to that panic. Uh, you know, had the, the, the men of, of Midian in disarray, and uh, they attacked one another and uh, killed off um, you know, most of the army. But the kings, Zalmanah and Ziba, had escaped, and Gideon needed help apprehending them. Now, at this point, it's important to note that there is something missing here in this part of the narrative uh, that we saw in previous verses just sprinkled all over the place. Now, previously, when Gideon needed guidance, what did he do? He wanted to get some confirmation from the Lord. So, you know, he laid out this fleece. He asked for miracles. He asked for, uh, you know, reaffirmation. You know, over and over and over again, we see Gideon going to the Lord saying, are you sure this is what you want me to do? But now, we don't see him doing anything of the sort. He just kind of figured out on his own what he needs to do. And uh, whether it's the right thing or not, we really don't know because Gideon is not asking God for guidance. Has that ever happened to you? No? You, you uh, are going along in life and you feel like you're pretty well connected to God and then, you know, he has a break, he, he breaks through for you. And uh, then for some reason or another, you just kind of forget that you're dependent upon God and uh, then you start depending upon your own wits. You know, we're, we're all vulnerable to this. So anyway, uh, Gideon and his small army, um, they're, they're chasing these kings of Midian and uh, you know, they're tired and, and they're hungry. And so uh, they get off the highway, get off at the exit there where there's a company of Ephraimites and by the way the tribe of Ephraim is pretty large they're pretty powerful and they're pretty wealthy nice combination so Gideon assumes that naturally the men of Ephraim are going to to help him he assumed wrongly see the leaders of Ephraim came to him and said look at it this way I mean, this, is, this was their position. Uh, are are uh, these uh, kings already in your hand? No, they're not in your hand. Uh, they're still on the loose. And if we give you bread, and that strengthens you to the point where you uh, are able to pursue them, but they elude your grasp, no, you're not going to have them in your hand, then they're going to find out from somebody that we gave bread to, 
to you, their enemy, and they're going to come down doubly hard on us. So this is too big of a risk for us to give you, you know, the, 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 the food that, that, that you need. So, what does Gideon do in response of that? Well, first of all, you, you might think, wouldn't you expect the, 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 the men of Ephraim to say something like this? Thank you so much you know, for, for uh, going up uh, against the Midianites on, on our behalf. This would have been a time for Gideon to say, you know, it really wasn't us at all. Uh, the, the Lord came and he caused this great confusion, just 300 of us against 135,000 of, of them. This was truly a miraculous intervention of God. We don't see that conversation taking place. Uh, instead, it's, it's come down to, you know, Gideon is thinking about his honor and what he thinks he deserves and in this case, he deserves some bread from the men of Ephraim. And the men of Ephraim are thinking um, about their own interests. They're only thinking about, you know, not, not the interest of, of the whole nation. They're just thinking about their part of it. So they don't want to do anything at all that might provoke the enemy. And as uh, they're, they're having this conversation in, in verse 1, uh, of chapter 8, it says that they, that speaking of uh, the, 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 the Ephraimites, they accuse Gideon fiercely. You know, it's uh, amazing that people can be bitter when they really should be thankful. <laughs> uh, you ever notice that in life? Some years ago, decades ago, we're going back, uh, back before most of you were born. Uh, but I was an adult. And um, I was serving in a, a church in Mississippi. And we had a, I guess you might call it a prayer project with uh, some of our young people. Um, you know, let's, let's ask uh, the, the Lord for a, a van. Uh, we need a van for our activities. The church can't afford one. But maybe God would give us one if we prayed and asked. And so we, we did over a course of uh, several weeks and then one day I um, was going to say I mustered the nerve but uh, I'd rather say you know God gave me the courage you know to go to the local GMC Pontiac dealer there in town and have a conversation with him it, it helped that his son was part of the youth group uh, nevertheless you know going to someone and you know asking for something it's not usually what you would expect to receive. But anyway, we had a conversation. I'm not exactly sure what I said, but somewhere along the line, the subject of a van came up, and uh, he thanked me for coming. And um, then later on, months later, I was at the, the convenience store across the street from the dealership, and I saw one of these transports come in, and they were unloading vehicles. And one of those vehicles was a nice, big, passenger van and I thought maybe that's ours and I got a phone call not too much later and the owner of the dealership said well your van is here you want to come look it over so I did that's fun 
And he said, you know, it's my pleasure to give this to your church. Uh, I'll also pay for the lettering. So you can put whatever you want uh, on the side or the back door, whatever. And so um, I chose a Bible verse from Mark 9, 23. And um, it says, all things are possible to him who believes. And so we had that lettered on there. And uh, the next Sunday, I was so excited to announce to our congregation uh, what had happened, and we could all rejoice and praise God together. But that's not what happened. What happened was something like this. Why did you get a GMC van and not a Ford van? Ford van is superior. They also said, have you thought about how much this is going to cost in insurance? Someone else said, why did you get a white van? Why not some other color? Why didn't you ask me about the color? You know, you've heard the old stories of churches splitting over the color of the carpet. We didn't split over that, um, thankfully. You know, we seem to have everything uh, pretty well unified in our thinking, but I thought the color of the van might do real damage to, to the church. Uh, here I was thinking, uh, I was going to get an attaboy or a pat on the back for uh, you know, being an instrument of God, but it didn't really happen that way. Um, so I have a, a little bit of an idea of what Gideon must have been thinking when he encountered bitterness and accusations when he was expecting rejoicing. Oh, Gideon was no doubt disillusioned with the man of Ephraim. Now, at this point, you might expect Gideon to blow a gasket or something, but that's not what he does. He's very diplomatic with the men of Ephraim and smooth things over with, with them. And then Gideon and his men uh, went to the next exit <laughs> down the highway to a place called Succoth. Um, when he came to, to, to Succoth, it's just east of the Jordan River, he asked the men of that town, same thing he asked the men of, of Ephraim. Hey, uh, you know, we've, we've been at war against the Midianites. Uh, we're tired, we're hungry. Uh, can, you, can you feed us? And uh, People of Succoth said, I think I've got this here. The officials of Succoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmana already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? It sound like to you they might have been in collusion with the people of Ephraim. <laughs> they said the same thing. You know, why wouldn't the men of Succoth give Gideon and his army anything to eat? Yeah. You know, the mission wasn't complete yet. Uh, these kings, uh, you know, Zeba and Zalmana, you know, really weren't kings in the sense that we think of, uh, you know, a monarchy over a whole nation. Uh, they were more like tribal chiefs. So uh, there could be several of them. And uh, they didn't really rule over a, a kingdom, you know, just, just uh, a small part. But... Uh, 
Anyway, the people of Succoth and Ephraim didn't want to take any chances on these two tribal chiefs or these two kings escaping. They, if, if they did, they could go back and regroup with the men who escaped and muster up some more troops and come back and attack with, 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 with a vengeance. And so, again, Gideon is chagrined at their behavior. He's hurt and he's angry. He expected to be honored, but instead he gets the opposite reception. And so he made a promise to the men of Succoth, and here's what he said. Well then, when the Lord has given Zeban Zalbana into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. I'll let your own imagination kind of take you as to what that might look like or, or, or feel like. But um, it would not have been a pretty sight. And so uh, Gideon and his 300 men head down the road to uh, the next exit, which uh, would have been Penuel. And here he says, uh, when I come back, I will break down this tower. Now, the, the tower is the place where people would go for refuge in case there were marauding bands of uh, enemies such as the, the, the Midianites. And so uh, Gideon is going to say, I'm, you, you won't help uh, in my mission to take care of the guys uh, that you were running, that you built this tower to protect yourselves from. So I'm just going to take that tower away from you when I, when I come back. So when uh, Gideon catches up with the Midianites, he catches them off guard. Zeba and Zalmanah uh, try to escape, but Gideon you know, he tore off after them and he captured them. And then when he brought these two enemy kings to justice, or before he did, uh, Gideon seeks out the elders of Succoth and he does to them what he promised he would do. He went to Penuel and he tore down the tower and killed their men. These are not Midianites that Gideon is taking down. These are his own people. Now I want us to see something that, that happens. When you don't get the credit for doing something that you think you deserve credit for. It can make you vulnerable. You know, vulnerable to the point that you, know, you don't seek God like you used to. You're thinking of your own hurt feelings more than anything else. And you're looking to right that wrong by taking out your frustrations on those closest to you. That's what we see happening here. We see it happening in, in life. It, it, it just happens. Now, I want to put this question in your mind. We, we see in scripture that Gideon made promises to the, the men of two villages, of, uh, of Succoth and of Penuel, that, you know, he's going to come and discipline one of them with briars and others. He's going to tear down their tower and, uh, you know, kill the, the men who were there. But what about Ephraim? We don't see him doing anything 
to the people of Ephraim, uh, why not? Well, it's like this. You see, the people of Ephraim were powerful, they were wealthy, and they were numerous. So even if Gideon wanted to do something to them, he couldn't. They were too strong. But there's another reason. See, the people of Ephraim were, were wealthy, and Gideon might need some of their money sometime. So instead of saying, when I come back, I'm going to discipline you with briars or tear down this tower or something like that, you know, he flatters them all over the place, makes them feel like they're more important than he is, that they had greater conquest than he had had, because someday he might need to tap in to their resources, and so he wants to build goodwill with them. These little places like Succoth and Penuel, they were powerless and poor. Gideon didn't need them, so he just wipes them out. So life for Gideon at this point, it's all about him. He's thinking only about himself and his own glory. There's no longer any room for God inside Gideon's head or his heart. He has forgotten God. You know, did, did Gideon ever, is, is there anywhere in scripture here uh, where uh, Gideon asked God what he should do about the men of Ephraim or Asuketh or, or Penuel and their respective situations? No, I mean, there, there's no indication at all that he did anything of the sort. You see, Gideon had lost sight of his God-given mission of delivering his people from the oppression of the Midianites. And what does he do instead? You know, he treats the people as though he is the enemy. You know, whereas Gideon was constantly seeking direction and reassurance from God on previous occasions, uh, now we don't see him giving God a second thought, much less a first one. So Gideon's mission in life is no longer about being an instrument in God's hand. His mission is now all about him. It's about his glory, about getting his due. The chief end of man in Gideon's eyes was no longer to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's about seeking his own glory and his own pleasure. Now, if we took time to read the rest of chapter 8 and all of chapter 9, we would see example after example after example of how Gideon makes everything all about him. And even though the nation of Israel doesn't have to worry about Midian for the next 40 years, uh, nevertheless, they have to worry about their deliverer, Gideon. So he's, uh, he's hurt. Pride is wounded, and he's looking to get his due. And so um, what does he do? Well, this is an artist's idea of what Gideon's golden ephod might have looked like. 
See, what Gideon did was uh, after the, the battle against the Midianites, he returns home and, and his own you know, hometown people are, are really pleased with his venture. And they say, hey, uh, how about if you and your son and, and your grandson uh, be, be our kings? You know, we'll set up a dynasty for you. How, how does that sound? And, uh, you know, that would sound good to anybody, but what, what Gideon said was, uh, I'm not going to rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Now, if it stopped there, uh, that would be great. But it didn't stop there. So what Gideon did, instead of doing what his words reflected, uh, he says one thing with his mouth, and he does something else uh, with his actions. And the thing that he did was he asked uh, for the, 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 the people to bring from the, the spoil of the battle against the Midianites, you know, one earring of gold. And uh, so they spread out this blanket. And uh, scripture tells us that they, uh, you know, gladly, you know, go and, and, and give the, the, the gold jewelry to Gideon. This is a kingly thing to do. I mean, the, the first thing that Gideon does after the people say, hey, you want to be our king, is he, he says no, but he collects taxes. So he's acting like a king. And so uh, he fashions this ephod. Uh, ephod was not to be worn by anybody but the high priest. Gideon was not the high priest. He was not even a member of the tribe of the Levites. But one of the things that the high priest would do, see, it had the, the urim and the thummim, and uh, what, what those were, you know, two stones uh, that were used in uh, you know, critical times to discern the will of the Lord. Like, you know, should we go up uh, against this particular people in battle or not? Uh, if so, you know, who should go up first? You know, things of, of, of that nature. And uh, the way it worked, they had two stones, and uh, they would you know, kind of roll them out on the table, and if they came out uh, you know, face up, both of them, that was a, a yes. If they came out both face down, that was a no. If it came out one face up and one face down, that was you know, no answer. And so uh, Gideon decided that uh, you know, he might like to be in this position of being able to go to God. You know, after all, he had gone to God before about the, the fleece and so forth, and God had responded. And so he decides that he is going to reorient what worship looks like. You see Gideon doing things now that not only resemble someone who is king, but also someone who thinks he is God. That's when you know that it's really all about you. You go from being, I need to have some credit for what I have done for who I am, to being, I needed to be treated like a king. And for that point, to being treated like, or, or to, to thinking like, I need to be treated like I am God. This is serious. So... So much for Gideon. Uh, that was a, a sad chapter, sad way to end his life. But Gideon had sons, 70 of them, not all by one wife, in case you're wondering. Uh, he had many wives, 
You also had at least one concubine. A concubine is a, a slave with benefits, I guess you might say. And so uh, with this concubine, uh, Gideon had a son whose name was Abimelech. You know what Abimelech's name means in Hebrew? It means my father is king. <laughs> so uh, you kind of put the pieces together, you know, when Gideon is standing there in front of uh, everybody and they say, hey, uh, you, would, would uh, you like to be our king and your son and, and, and your grandson? Uh, we don't know if uh, Abimelech was there listening to all of that or not. Nevertheless, his name means my father is king. So what does this tell you about Abimelech? He is born with a sense of entitlement. He thinks he's entitled to be treated like a king. I mean, after all, uh, his, his name uh, says to everyone that his father is the king. But, you know, the principle is the same in Abimelech's life as it was in, in Gideon's life. Um, he wants to be treated like a king. He wants to be regarded as someone who doesn't have to answer to, to anyone. Um, so uh, even though uh, Gideon turned down the invitation to be king, uh, Abimelech accepted that backhanded invitation. So he has this conversation with some of the men of Shechem and uh, he says, you, you know, you don't want 70 sons of Gideon ruling over you. That, that's too many. But, but you know what? I mean, he's talking to, to people in Shechem who um, a, lot, a lot of these guys uh, were relatives of uh, Abimelech's mother. He says, I'm not one of them. You know, I'm, I'm one of you. You know my mother. Our family is upstanding citizens in, in this community. And wouldn't you rather have one of your own as king and not one of the other sons of, of Gideon? And uh, they thought, well, that's a good idea. So they, they give him a donation from the, the, the treasury of the Baals that they worshipped. Uh, Baal Barith, which means covenant with Baal. Uh, they made a covenant with Baal and not with God. But anyway, they take, or Abimelech takes that money. And you know what he does with it? He hires a bunch of terrorists, uh, vagabonds. And so they go out and they kill the legitimate sons of Gabriel. Not Gabriel, Gideon. Getting my G people mixed up. Now I lost my train of thought. So anyway, uh, Abimelech uh, comes to the conclusion that, well, you know, one of the sons of Gideon has to be the king. That's the only legitimate person uh, who, you know, should be offered this, this role of, of king. And since nobody else here is uh, able to claim sonship but me, because I have eliminated them, therefore that entitles me to be king. What kind of warped thinking is that? But you know what's even more warped? Is all the people are saying, yeah, yeah, I mean, you are. You're, you're entitled to be king. Uh, he's entitled because he hired a bunch of murderers to, to kill off all of his brothers. That's why he thinks he should be treated like a king. 
You know, Gideon thought he should be treated like a king because he was successful in battle. Abimelech thought he should be king because he was entitled to it by birth and because he killed his brothers. Now, if Abimelech's brothers would just bow out, uh, would make things so much easier, but they wouldn't, and so he had to take things into his own hands. Isn't this a sad, sad story? All right, Judges is just full of sad stories, full of violence and bloodshed and sin. But with all of this as the, the, the backdrop, are we beginning to see how Abimelech is totally self-centered, how he has no regard for God, and why is he so self-centered? It's this overpowering sense of entitlement. Now Gideon thought that he should be treated like a king because of the honor that was due him. Abimelech thought he should be that he should receive honor because he had the title of king, but also because he had eliminated his brothers to any, and so therefore wiped out any competing legitimate claims to the throne. Okay, so that's what I want to cover in chapters 8 and 9, but I want to leave us with some kind of application. Now, one of the oldest tendencies of our sinful hearts is to exalt people to the place that belongs only to God. The book of Judges reminds us that in those days there was no king. In Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Nevertheless, the people of Israel did have a king. God was their king. He led them. He protected them. He provided for them. He saved them. But as is the case far too often, the people of God are often looking for a replacement God. And this is as true for us as it was for the people of Israel in the days of the judges. You see, we too want to blend into our culture, just as the people of Israel wanted to do. We too want the authority to change the basis of what is right and what is wrong. In other words, we too want to do what is right in our own eyes. We too want a king who reflects our values, a king who could be easily manipulated and controlled. And we too want a king who will say and do what we want him to do. And we too, along with Gideon and Abimelech, want what rightly belongs to the true king, his glory, his kingdom, his sovereignty, his authority, his legitimacy, legitimacy, everything. If the gospel accounts of, well, in the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, there is this parable of the wicked tenants. Uh, you might remember that parable but it goes something like this there was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and he built a tower and he rented it out to certain tenants and so when the grapes were ready to be harvested the owner sent his servants into the harvest to gather the fruit but the wicked tenants didn't want that to happen and so they killed the servants and so the owner sent his son eventually 
And he said, they will respect my son. But the tenants you know, had a, a different perspective. They thought if we kill the son, then we will rightfully inherit the vineyard. So they thought if they killed the son, they could take ownership of the vineyard. And so that's exactly what they do in the parable. And it's exactly what they do just a few days later when the son of the owner of the vineyard, and vineyard was a euphemism, was a symbolic word for the nation of Israel. When he came, his enemies killed him, thinking that if we kill the son, then we become rightful kings. We become the owners of the vineyard. We control the kingdom. It's ours. Go out and seize it. Do you think maybe Jesus had the story of Abimelech in mind when he told this parable? Well, it would apply to lots of situations uh, throughout the history of that nation, but it certainly does illustrate that what happened in Abimelech's day ultimately happened when Jesus, the true king himself, came to claim the, the vineyard. And so the true king reminds us that the day is coming of his return. We wonder sometimes when we look at this, you know, where, where was God? Um, we don't seem to see any indication that God was there. Just because God is silent does not mean he is absent. And when the day comes, he will pronounce both judgment and mercy, no justice to those who have sinned and have not repented, mercy to those who have sinned, but whose sins have been justly paid by Christ, atoning death on the cross. But God is never the absentee owner. He is the ever-present king. He is the Lord, and the Lord alone is the true king. He is the king we need, the king who saves us from our biggest threat, the sin in our own hearts. Is he your king? Let's pray together. Gracious Father, in acknowledging the, the, the truth of what we have read in your word uh, this morning. We want to confess that uh, we are vulnerable. Uh, we're, when we don't receive uh, praise or credit for things that we believe we should be uh, honored for. Uh, we become vulnerable, uh, just like Gideon and Abimelech did. Um, we can very easily slip into uh, 
a, a, a self-centered existence just as they did and, and uh, leave you out. Help us, Lord. The threat is real. Uh, not so much an outside threat, but an inside threat. A threat inside our own hearts. Deliver us from this way of thinking that we should have uh, our sense of entitlement uh, satisfied or that somehow or another we are deserving of the things that only you are truly deserving of. Keep us focused on you. May we ever be centered on the cross. And may we, in all things, in all places, and in every circumstance, put Christ first above all. Through the name of our Redeemer and King, we pray.